It's quite kind of a lot going. You've got the weather, the wine, yeah. and the weed. You know, yeah. the three W's as the Americans. You know, I remember being told in San Francisco, we got three W's. Yeah, <laughs> and that you know, they, and that's true. You know, that, and it, it, in many ways, it ought to be utopian civilization because it's got beautiful weather. I mean, it's like a Mediterranean. Okay, it might have earthquakes and. Mm. Fo- but it's but it's uh, the social system there is a disaster. It has a it has a, a very real um, aspect of paradise. Um, and when, when hell. Welcome to Calibunga, Tech, Drugs, and Capitalist Soul. This is a special multi-part series of Alpha Bunga Bunga on the Californian ideology. That seemingly paradoxical hybrid of new left and new right ideas, the synthesis of hippies with yuppies, all tied together with the promise that new technology, and especially the internet, might liberate us. We're obviously hardly the first to discuss this. In fact, an essay by that title came out as far back as 1995. More on this in just a second. But what we're trying to do in this series is examine how the Californian ideology has changed over the past decades, and how it's permeated different societies. As Alpha Bunga Bunga, the global politics podcast at the end of the end of history, we're always trying to periodize the global present, so we're delighted to be bringing you this series. None of this would be possible without the support of the School of Humanities at the University of California, Irvine. Regular Bunga guest Catherine Yu, a professor at the school, initiated this idea and acted as our sponsor and host to fly us out to California and record this series, so huge thanks to her and the School of Humanities at UC Irvine. Over this series, we're going to be talking about various strands of the Californian ideology today. But we're not going to be presenting some big thesis up front, and instead hopefully a picture emerges a bit more organically. But just to preview the main themes that you'll be hearing about over the next few episodes. Wellness and therapy culture, drugs, both recreational and medicinal, technology and rationalization, gentrification and suburbs, the end of the American dream, and European encounters with California, and vice versa. Maybe a question to consider as we go along is this. California for a long time felt like the future, but are we now leaving it behind? Or maybe a more hardened, more rationalized version of the California ideology is our future. The whole of America is stuck in the 90s. Vibe. I have a Chinese friend who said that 30 years ago they used to go to America as the future and now they go to America as the past. Yeah. Richard Barbrook, author of that 1995 essay, The Californian Ideology. Because they can't, they can't believe how backwards it is. Mm. It's funny because, you know, Marx in, in 1874 moved the international to New York thinking the Americans were going to lead us to communism. Mm. Well, I always think, That's I was joking, yeah. he said, he said he's only, he was only 140 years <laughs> old. But, the good thing about, one thing I will say about there's lots of things wrong with America, but one thing I really like about Americans is they get up on their arse and do something. Mm. So, you know, here we had all this controversy about Uber, and then, you know, Sadiq, you know, said we've got to do something, you know, about their life. Whereas when I went to this platform co-ops conference in uh, New York, there was somebody, I can't remember if it was San Diego or Sacramento, they were basically the taxi drivers had formed their own cooperative mm. and their own app, and they were getting more business than Uber. Mm. So I just thought it's, that, you know, there's lots of things wrong with them, but on certain things, they get up their arse and do something. So mm-hmm. here, the left is going, nee, 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 we don't like Uber, do this. But they don't, what they don't do is they go set up an alternative to Uber, mm-hmm. which is the, which would be a no-brainer yeah. to and, do. 
definitely possible to do. And there's lots of cab drivers and there are lots of you know people who could code it and everything. And the, the, we have a Labour administration in well, sort of. I don't know. Well, Sadiqis, moderates, <laughs> sure. tax yeah. left when you need to. But I mean, that's adjacent. something you could probably persuade Sadiq to help you on if you actually. Mm. But they don't do it. It's just like extraordinary. Mm. To be talking to a Brit in London seems a strange place in which to start talking about California. But the Californian ideology isn't just about California anymore. Those ideas and that model of society and politics has been exported. It's diffused across borders. In London, George met Richard Barbrook, a senior lecturer in politics at the University of Westminster and a labor activist. Along with Andy Cameron, Richard wrote the Californian ideology as a critique of dot-com liberalism. When you wrote this this essay, in, you and um, Andy Cameron in 1995, what were the key elements of the Californian Californian ideology at that point in time? So the, the the original essay was written basically for ourselves. We were setting up an MA in hypermedia studies mm. it was at the University of Westminster. It was one of the first, it was actually the first postgraduate you know, digital arts media degrees in the country and. At the time, you have to understand this is the mid 1990s. Mm. So we we it's, we're coming out of a recession of uh, the early 1990s. We're moving towards the election of Blair. Mm-hmm. It's actually quite obvious by 1995 that the the, the very right wing left party will be about to come to power. Uh, and it's Clinton's in power in that's Bill Clinton. Uh, Bill Clinton is the president in the states. Mm. So it's. You have a lot of, so that, you have to understand the media at the time who's sort of the internet has only just really started. Okay, oh, you know, mm. the first, the Russians, well, the Soviet Union had a vision of cybernetic communism in the late 1950s, but obviously the internet in the sense we know is developed in America in response. And that, you know, starts in the late 1960s, but certainly in you know, 1980s, the only people I know with email addresses were uh, natural scientists. Mm. So nobody was really using. We, I mean, I, there was Minitel in France, which was like yeah. the first ubiquitous packet switching network. But so I, I'd seen this, and I'd been waiting for it to happen. So, and Andy Cameron was running a CD-ROM, if you can remember that technology. Uh, just about. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's a manufacturing thing, and basically part of an arts sort of contemporary media practice. So it's a media studies degree, but very practical. It taught theory and practice, and he had this module. And he said, look, this internet is arriving, and you're interested in our media. Let's set this thing up. And what was interesting about me is that most of the you can imagine the early adopters of the internet tended to be left of centre, mm. right? They, so they were, you know, artists, techies, mm-hmm. activists. Uh, but it was what's interest. I think was interesting about it is they had sort of early early things of what we you know what we just take for granted, like like actually bringing somebody in on a video for America. They had Timothy Leary actually oh, interviewed yeah. in the club by over the internet with a wow. sort of shaky uh, <laughs> video speed. This was CUC me. That's what I'm trying to think. What the pro- yeah. That's what the program was called. That was quite impressive, actually. Doctor Tim, they said, "Why? Why do you think that the, the internet is like like LSD?" They asked Doctor Tim, and he replied, "Because they were both invented by the U.S. government." <laughs> <laughs> Not exactly true, but I knew it. But you know, true enough. Um, so they were they were doing that, and they had people with emails and yeah. all this sort of stuff. So they, it was very much that scene. I think it was that sort of sort of rave post rave scene, right. or it was lefty activists, okay. or it was sort of hacker type techies. 
So and, they, and so when they did a survey of people who were using this uh, the uh, Siberia, which was this cyber mm. cafe in Soho, which was opened mm. in 1992, I think. Mm. Yeah, uh, it was the world's first cyber cafe. Bizarre, but it was then opened in London. And their most popular newspaper, well, people still read newspapers in those days, was The Guardian. It beat every other newspaper. So they're left of centre, yeah. basically. Not massive, they're necessarily they're communists or anything, but they're left of centre. But it's interesting, as soon as it came to the inter, and this is a bit we were interested in, people would start spouting neoliberalism. So they wouldn't want to privatise the railways because they weren't privatised, mm. or the health service, and they were generally against the Tory government and its economic, because even then it was... You, know, you can see the downside to neoliberal, but as soon as it came to the internet, they started spouting neoliberal right. attitudes about you know free markets and competition and and that's because they were reading Wired magazine. So there was a there was a tension between the the politics that the, yeah. these early adopters would have in elsewhere England. in England and or in Europe in general because we were also part of this net time mailing list which is started around the same time. So the Europeans mm. were all lefties in a, in, a, in a more or less traditional set, you know, from anarchist, socialist, mm. guardianry, that sort of thing. But when it came to the internet, because they, their knowledge of it came from Silicon Valley, mm. and it came from this magazine called Wired. And what was interesting is that Wired had been preceded by another magazine called Mondo 2000, right. which was run by yeah. St. Jude and R.U. Serious, uh, who and they'd been ex-Maoists, and then it was all sort of selling smart drugs and well, lots of this wellness stuff. You just can't. but 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 it was again it was sort of this sort of weird mixture of hippiness and and new left politics. Yeah, and then suddenly Wired replaced it, mm. copied a lot of its ideas, uh, had much more psychedelic graphics, but obviously it was completely funded by Silicon Valley, mm. and that's what we were interested in when we set up this MA course. We had thought, well, we have to do something different from the Americans. Yeah. Because we're Europeans, basically. And there was so we thought, right, we'll write this piece to just identify what we think is different. And it was also to get in our own heads. Right. So um, we wrote it and that's where we started. And I, I when I was doing my PhD, I spent a summer in Berkeley, not in not obviously Silicon Valley, but it's just north of it. Um doing basically sitting in the library Look, reading various stuff I was writing about <coughs> the origins of broadcasting in America, um, and it was it. What I met there was lots of new lefties, hmm. and they were very, you know, the old new left basically, and they were very, very anti-capitalist, you hmm. know, and they definitely weren't the liberals. So it was this weird combination that they they had this whole hippie ethic, hmm. and they were obviously playing on the whole image of the new left. Though obviously, as we know, we know they're not really part of that. Yeah, Fred mm. Turner did a much better. You know, took our article and did this great book, yeah. Counterculture to Cyber, you know, Cyberculture. You know, he talks about how they never really were part of the New Left. But if you went when I was in Berkeley in the early eighties, you met people who'd been around all these movements. Mm. You know, they'd done, you know, they'd done acid. They'd been a Maoist. They'd been a, a rural commune. They'd had mm. the whole Earth. You know, so they, you know, they'd done it. Buddhist chanting and tantrics, you know, they'd done everything, they just yeah. moved around. So they might have, the group round Wired might have been distinct and separate, but they were part of this media and they played on that radical image of the, the hippies, basically. 
the anti-war, anti-the man, anti... But actually, they were spouting Ronald Reagan. And I met somebody in 1981 in, uh, who wasn't at Berkeley in the 60s. They were actually at the uh, the universe San Francisco, the, basically the one in the city, San Francisco okay. University. And, she, and Ronald Reagan had literally sent tanks against them. Hmm. They'd had some protests. But they were still uh, and, Reagan, and, uh, No, no, she wasn't, definitely. She was a Maoist. Uh, but they literally, she'd been protesting against the, uh, the the Vietnam War. And he, the National Guard had used tanks to get them off the streets. Mm-hmm. So the idea that somehow they, the, the, the new, you know, that this hippie media could turn into Ronald Reagan, mm-hmm. uh, new lib- neoliberals, was really interesting. And that's what that got... Trust, we thought. I mean, obviously, a lot of baby boomers, you know, basically got Reagan into power, but whether how many of those actually came from that hippie media or mm. were the people who never turned on in the period, I don't know. Because all the surveys show the people who are real hippie activists basically have you know, considerably less <laughs> over their lifetime than those who never did become hippies. But so that's what in that was the original starting point about yeah. what how Silicon Valley managed to combine. That whole, you know, the, you know, the the man having been corporate organization man, stuffy. You know, IBM used to, you know, they all used to have to wear the sort of same suit. Yeah. They had to wear sock suspenders, otherwise you get fired. <laughs> okay. You know, they had, you know, they, they'd have, you know, they have, you know, it was like a sort of Stalinist bureaucracy essentially, because it was a large American corporation which Stalin deeply admired. Um, so that that. That, that sort of, and then to turn themselves into sort of Steve Jobs or yeah. something. That was the interesting. And I met somebody, Dunn Acid, actually, in 1981. I met some because he was already quite well known even then because of Apple. I had met somebody, Dunn Acid, with Jobs. What was, uh, and, and what he was, was that like? Who was then, a, he, this guy was like a school teacher or something. And he always said he always was a bit of a shit. <laughs> with his basic comments. <laughs> <laughs> Is, uh, so is, <laughs> he, he was really down on him. It was really fun. Because I, I said at the time, I wasn't that... I mean, I was interested because Silicon Valley was going on. Mm. And there was this other magazine at the time called Processed Word, which was like a sort of autonomist, American autonomist, who were working in Silicon Valley. And so, but I, you know, I was quite interested in this because I'd you know, been to France and people were interested and we were doing pirate radio. But it wasn't like my main interest. Mm. But I, I just remember talking to people because they were on the periphery of it in Berkeley. I mean, obviously now it's completely taken over the whole Bay Area so, economically. So do you think it's do you think it's too much of a simplification to say at that point in the mid-90s, the Californian ideology was essentially neoliberal economic ideas in hippie packaging? Yeah, exactly. Okay. But it's also the combination of Sort of economic liberalism and right. social liberalism. Right. Okay. Now you think of Thatcher, it was neoliberalism was an economic project, but actually politically, morally, mm. you know, it was very repressive, you know, and homophobic, racist. I mean, I almost got beaten to death by her by the Metropolitan Police outside the Wapping printing plant, you know. So that was the, you know, the so strong was, state. You know, it was very authoritarian. You know, my. T- I, when we were doing uh, community radio thing in the 80s, the secret police tapped my phone for six months. I was told by the observer to <laughs> paper. You know, this sort of thing. So that, 
that sort of combination of you know mm. she had a very morally politically authoritarian view mm. but there but everything else would go out the window now you know now it doesn't seem you know the, the Tories passed a gay marriage act but at the time that would seem you know this sort of strong state moral authoritarian the family and all this stuff kept the neoliberal economy mm. going and now it's only recently now as we can see with all them admitting that they smoked opium and snorted surprise surprise uh, smoke weed because that actually but that you know since they caught up with the Californian ideology they, yeah. in you know in certainly people I know who were involved in that media basically said they were all cokeheads so, the whole of Silicon Valley was run on powder you know so it was the magic of the technology it seemed very yeah. liberating it is liberatory so yeah and the fact that it was essentially the people, the, all the early adopters here were very ra- left, yeah. left, left. I'm not saying they're very left, they were left and said, and that was the contradiction between that and this particular media in America where it was very aggressively hardline neoliberal. Hmm. You know, they, were, they had Newt Gingrich on the cover. <laughs> Before moving on to yeah. thinking about how things have, have, have changed and bringing it to the more to the present day just an, a, a final question i guess about this the original essay yeah. what what did you see as the role of the entrepreneur this figure in the californian ideology around this this period well, of the mid 90s well i think there's very positive things about entrepreneurs mm. you know we should have socialist entrepreneurs mm. you know I, I think you know like one of the things i admire about americans is they get up at their arse and do something mm. you know lots of the english and europeans will sit around whinging and moaning Easier and, to and, and not do anything well sit in the pub and we yeah. we'll start the revolution when this pub closes yeah. well which time we're too drunk to care <laughs> you know so, so that's one of the good sides of that culture the whole mm. hacker ethic and, mm. you know I was involved in pirate radio where we you know we, we campaigned for radio license and the Tories go no you know, and then we all oh, bugger this. We've just got we've got to look at this play basket and build us a transmitter. So we'll just go and buy a transmitter and stick it on the tab like a broadcast lefty propaganda and our favourite tunes. <laughs> you know, yeah. that, so that that sort of attitude I like about them. I think that's really good. But yeah. it's it's when it becomes associated with Joseph Schumpeter, hmm. where it becomes a substitute for class. Yeah. You know the the, the the you know the, the you know it should be says you know reassembling or all neoliberals you know reassembling the factors of production you know mm. it's the creative destruction process. It's the the ubermensch of capital. Who what is it? What is it? It comes for you know it above. Comes, it's that sort of combination of Nietzsche and Bakunin, isn't mm. it? and it and it's you know it's anti-left, it's anti-socialist yeah. in that sense. You know, they're they you know who are who's creating the wealth in Silicon Valley? It's not the entrepreneurs. It's mm. the it's the it's the it's the programmers. It's the you know the cleaners. It's the it's the it's the minicab driver. You know, it's those sorts of people are all mm. completely written out of it. People assembling the hardware, mm. and that that seems to me. You know, again, I think now. It's not so radical. So you have to understand when we were saying this in the 90s, it was quite, quite yeah. something to say. So to touch on one of the, the points that we talked about earlier, do you think that there is still, um, looking at, I guess, contemporary California or contemporary Silicon Valley, do you think there is still this um, combination of a kind of, of a, a romantic um, or kind of a hippie streak of, of thinking with that? more hard-edged, neoliberal, 
uh, rationalised. Uh, well, I think you know, I think you know, I wrote this book Imaginary Futures, which mm. is about how the, about the Soviet Union, and the United States competing over who would own the future. Mm. So part of it's about that. It's a be, it's always been about you know I think one of the threats of the Chinese is not whether or not they really are a threat to American geopolitical hegemony, which I assume they are at one level. But it's also they threaten to overtake them in key technologies like mm. 5G and AI. And partly what, you know, the whole California ideology was about is that America was the sort of beta version of the future mm. and that everyone else would have to copy California. And suddenly now the, the existential crisis they're having is that if you go to California, it looks like the past, mm. the future. You know, you know, you could get. You know, they don't even have a single kilometre of high-speed rail in the entire country, and yet in the 19th century, okay, railways were invented in this country, but you know, America was the railway place. So where, mm. you know, and all the infrastructure's crumbling. They're still stuck in, you know, car. You can't get a, you know, you can't get a, a proper connections between the railway with the airport and mm. the downtown. You know, the whole culture is stuck in this sort of 60s, 40s model. So far from being post-Fordist or mm. the information age, it's very much like a sort of LARPing the 60s or a sort of, but sort of pre, again, a pre-hippie city, sort of mm. that 50s, early 60s vision of, of it. So do you think that, that California still owns the future? No. Is it, is, is it, well, certainly when it did, did, did they lose it or did somebody else, did other Well, I think what's interesting is, is that the Europeans didn't realise that they became the future. Hmm. So if you talk to, again, you talk to Chinese people, they would say, well, but what they're imitating now is Northern Europe. Hmm. So they look at somewhere, you know, like Sweden or basically, you know, places lots of, you know, having got everyone off bicycles into cars, <laughs> They're now going to get them out of the And just like, you now everything is clean and ordered. Mm. And, um, you, know, there's, you know, it's sort of human level. Mm. You know, and so that's interesting. That's interesting. You know, that with high technology. Mm. So that's, I think, is an interesting thing. Because you know, I've been to, I gave a, I did a conference in Berlin a few years ago. And they were sort of, I still had this cultural cringe to California. I said, no, you're the future. Mm. You, don't, you don't understand that you you just don't lack. Talking with Europeans, they lack the self confidence to realise that mm. that you know European social democracy is in a way the most futuristic society we have at the moment. Mm. Bernie Sanders will say this. The DSA will say this. Yeah. Mm. So, I mean, what, so what do you think? Sort of, notwithstanding all these points about perhaps California isn't isn't this. He's got a lot going. He's got the weather, the yeah. wine, and the weed. You know, yeah. the three W's as the Americans. You know, I remember being told in San Francisco, we got three W's. Yeah, <laughs> and that you know, and they, and that's true. You know, that, and it, it, in many ways, it ought to be utopian civilization because it's got beautiful weather. I mean, it's like a Mediterranean. Okay, it might have earthquakes and. Mm. Fo- but it's yeah. but it's uh, the social system there is a disaster. It has a it has a, a very real um, aspect of paradise. Um, when, and when hell. There. But yeah, and that's I mean, every well. time I go there, the homelessness gets worse. Yeah. And it was shocking the first time I went there in the early eighties, and now when I went there, whenever it was eighty, and it's got much worse, much worse actually. So, 
So, so, and it's that, and they've got the money. That's the thing is that they could solve these problems. In the places incredibly rich, they could solve mm. these problems. Really, they could build high speed rail. They could build public housing, but they won't. What do you think is the role of um, Silicon Valley in in general, or, or the Californian ideology in contemporary American politics? Because Nancy Fraser argues that you have this progressive neoliberalism, which essentially came to an end um, with the election of Trump, um, and that Silicon Valley was an important aspect of this. I think tying together some of these very socially uh, progressive ideas with some... Um, well, they spent, didn't the Clinton campaign spend a billion dollars on online campaign? They, yeah, I think... Google built a, a, a machine called Ada, also Ada Lovelace. Really? Yeah, I didn't and, know and they said, no, you don't need to go canvassing, you just do targeted Facebook after. Because they always got along about Cambridge Analytica, but no one mm. talks about that actually the Clinton campaign did more money, spent more money than anyone ever done on digital government, and it was a complete failure. Because it told them, you know, don't canvass in Wisconsin. Uh, yeah, Robbie... You, know, you can have the shittiest candidate, you can, you can choose the shittiest possible candidate. And Which they did. With each, they couldn't have chosen a worse candidate if they tried. Yeah. <laughs> and 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 they thought, well, we've got a billion dollars, you know, they've got all this money from dodgy sources like the Saudis and whoever else, Honduran oligarchs, whoever else they the Clinton yeah. Foundation were hoovering money up off, uh, and they still lost. No, the the story of. Um... The decisions made by Robbie Mook, the campaign manager. It's a great book called Shattered. Yeah, yeah. Which I, I bought in Irvine. Oh, right. And I read it on the plane home and I was laughing. I must admit, I, you know, much as I loathed Trump, I did think her losing was really good. Because <laughs> I really dislike that woman. So. We've, we've discussed yeah, this on the, on the podcast previously, how the... Yeah, Hillary Clinton as a as a candidate was representative of a certain a certain strand. Woke, woke neoliberalism. Yeah, which which and you cannot corrupt. I mean, they're yeah. so phenomenally corrupt. Even I mean, American politicians are very corrupt, but she is like way off the scale in the corruption. Which is it impressive? <laughs> which is impressive. <laughs> yeah, just yeah. sheer. Yeah, yeah, no, no, it's quite extraordinary. The whole that whole thing, it was a real mo. Yeah, I. I, I met this guy who was, um, he was actually, he grew up in a trailer park in Kansas. So he really is, he's an oddity of trailer trash. Mm. But, uh, and he was saying to me that his relatives, he's an academic in York, he said, they, 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 he said, he, I remember him saying like 18 months, he said he's burning on Trump. He said, mm. because he said, there's no way any of his relatives would ever vote for a Clinton mm. after what built into them. No, I'm, you know, we're, with, with we're in that same situation and, and, they, and they deliberately run her because they preferred to lose to Trump yeah. in fact they chose Trump as the alternative candidate you can't possibly win it's a bit like the producers isn't it they, yeah. put, they, put up, they get the worst possible musical and it's so so terrible it's actually gets, it becomes a hit and, and Trump I, is like exactly the same I haven't heard that analogy but that is actually brilliant um <laughs> So I've got a Trumpian success in my hands. Um, maybe to sort of to, to wrap things up a little bit and move maybe to a bit more positive um, territory. Well, let's, well, I think we should talk about this progressive mm. neoliberalism. Okay. Because I think this is really important to think that when neoliberalism came in, as I said, it had this very authoritarian edge because mm. it was about breaking the labour movement. Yeah. You know, trade unions. You know, in this country, breaking the miners, abolishing local government. 
you know, tra- trashing the Labour yeah. Party, forcing the Labour Party left into being a margin, you know, so you could, and then that, and then it became the dominant force, and then it could then go through this sort of woke phase, yeah, where something was okay to be, you know, you know, it's amazing how in my lifetime being gay lesbian which was like the weirdest thing possible and was really despised and a huge amount of prejudice and now you go around where it's gay pride and every corporation has a fucking rainbow flag outside yeah and that transformation which is very positive you know because people have now mm. lived their lives and get married and not go through all the hassles that they went through before i mean it's not that you know they're still homophobic problems in this society but i have a nephew you know uh, Okay, and uh, yeah, his life is so much better than people of 20 or 30 years ago, mm. uh, and that is very positive. But so, and now we're coming to the end of this process, yeah. Do, do you see that? And of... now it's interesting, we've now got the sort of neoliberal variant of fascism this weird combination of you know, with Trump and Brexit and Erdogan and Duarte or Bolsonaro, of having this really strange mixture on one hand. Very hardcore neoliberalism, rolling back the welfare state, privatising everything, giving all the money to the bankers, just trashing the environment. And, but at the same time, having this completely very statist ethno-nationalism mm. at the same time. But do, do you, to return, I guess, to the point that you, you made in passing earlier, do, but do you see this, this cycle of progressive neoliberalism or woke neoliberalism as, as coming, to, coming to an end? Do you think it's, it's achieved... For example, that um, there was a uh, the Home Office on their Twitter page put the the rainbow flag um, to a lot well, of, a lot of well. So <laughs> back, do you think these to, back to homophobic countries? Do you, do you think <laughs> these these contradictions have now become too glaring? Is 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 this this um, high well, tide of progressive I, I was very involved with the GLC, Greater London yeah. Council in the early nineteen eighties. You know, that's how I know John McDonnell and people like that. Uh, and then, you know, things like, you know, you know, respecting your gay brothers and lesbian sisters and celebrating the fact that we're a multi-ethnic, multicultural city and trying to, you know, help make life more accessible, make place more accessible for people with disabilities. You know, that was seen as uniting the class. It was seen the problem is, you know, they're using divide and rule, you know. Mm. If you encourage men to be sexist, that mm. means you divide men against women, you're playing them off against each other, and you know, it's divide and rule. The all read classicists, you know, the ruling class of educating the classics. Divide rule, you know, yeah. get people to be homophobic, get people to be racist, he divides rule, and they can't unite. So, yeah. for us, it was about creating class unity. Yeah. So, I've always had a problem when they, the identity, when it's new social, that's fine, because that's about uniting the class. But when you can say it's about identity, which is separate from yeah. when the point is, is actually to bring people together yeah. to realise. That you know, in your family, you have a gay relative. So why are you a homophobe? Mm. Or you know, or that we intermarry with. You know, the great thing about the English is they'd love to be racist, but as soon as foreigners arrive, they start intermarrying with them and having babies. <laughs> but yeah, and that sort of thing. So you, your actual family, your friends, the people. In, so then that allows you to bring the class together, and that seems to me a real difference in the the woke type of uh, this is that it actually doesn't it what that the one unspoken oppression is class and they mm. can't talk about that because they're corporations or mm. they're banks or they're the Tory party and that 
you know, you can say about everything apart from the most obvious thing, which is if you go on the tube early in the morning, people do not look very happy because <laughs> they're going to work. Now let's actually go to California, Irvine in Orange County in particular, to learn a bit more about one key component of the Californian ideology, wellness. While this may appear only to concern one leg of the ideology, that sort of hippie-ish, new-agey one, as we'll find, it has just as much to do with the yuppie side of things, with the market and disguised class oppression, as well as with technology as a supposedly liberatory ingredient in today's society. George and I were at UC Irvine to record with the research group Catherine set up, called States of Wellness, and the three researchers there, all of whom you'll hear now, as well as in the following episode, out next week. So the voices you'll be hearing now belong to Benjamin Kruger Robbins, talking about his work on AIDS and public television in the 1980s, Michael Mahoney on psychopharmacology and the reconfiguration of mental illness, and Thomas Williams on capitalism and depression. First, here's Catherine explaining a little bit more about what's behind the project. We started out calling the um, project um, the wellness myth, which reflects its sort of old-fashioned ideology critique um, approaches to this discourse of wellness that was exploding around us, um, I think, as directly as a um, reaction to the damage that was caused by 40 years of um, austerity policies. Um, the very beginning of the project began with me and um, Thomas talking about his work on depression and um, affect theory in queer theory and how um, queer theories direct embrace of affect theory embraced a kind of privatized management of emotion and gave up on sort of public sphere stuff just as you know the public sphere is collapsing around us with regard to infrastructural investments by um, neoliberal governments, especially American, but throughout the world. Um, the other aspects of the project that were highlighted um, came out when we thought about um, the Californian ideology and the management of health as a kind of reified state of being that um, has now been globalized and exported out of our beautiful state as a thing called wellness. So from Taipei to Austria, you can see spas selling treatments that um, deal with wellness. But more academically, with regard to ideology critique, we thought, or I don't know, like institutionally, um, we thought that the discourses around wellness needed to be criticized in large part also because graduate school student mental health has become reframed as a question of wellness rather than a question of um, infrastructural support or financial support. More you know, closely at home, intellectually, um, there were two books that were really important to the group which met over the years called um, the first one by Barbara Ehrenreich and the second one by William Davies, um, the Happiness Industry and Barbara Ehrenreich's book called Natural Causes that came out just as we were sort of mobilizing on this project, um, Natural Causes, an Epidemic of Wellness, The Certainty of Dying and Killing Ourselves to Live Longer. So um, um, wellness has become a fully reified state of well-being that seems to belong only to PMC elites and has a lot, and it has a lot to do with, um, I would say, like the new um, post-Taylorist, post-Fordist attempts to create a motivated workforce. 
um, as Taylorism, we know, was innovated to deal with more efficient forms of production. Right now, we're looking at a post-industrial world where um, affect and um, mental health are breaking down. And in return, we have this eclectic sort of hodgepodge of cures that come out of the 60s counterculture, that come out of Californians' um, embrace of a very kitschy notion of Eastern wisdom. And um, I've written about that a lot. And so each one of these projects fits into both the collapsing of public sphere, the treatment of um, health as a perfectly a privatized elite pursuit that becomes framed as wellness. And um, we really believe in and think about, I think, um, those of us in the room, um, old-fashioned ideology critique. And so this project is part of that, even though in institutionally we would probably get more money and support if we framed ourselves as part of the medical humanities, which has a big banner that says, um, what is it, like, um, health, healing, and well-being is their um, thing. And I feel like it's a complete um, betrayal of scholarly work and intellectual enterprise to make the humanities purely therapeutic. Here's Benjamin Kruger-Robbins on Quality TV in the 1980s and the AIDS public health crisis. You had to have this sort of nichification of the audience in order to have good cinematic uh programming that had a correct liberal ideology undergirding it. And there was a lack of examination here between uh, regarding the the kind of paradox that um, health was being outsourced to for-profit stations like NBC during the AIDS era, which is predominantly what I'm talking about uh, in in this chapter, um, and that um, NBC has to sort of carry the burden of liberal welfare, which the 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 uh, Reagan administration, with uh, Mar- Margaret Heckler uh, heading up Health and Human Services, was more than happy to indulge because they didn't want to spend public funds on this. So it's much easier to have NBC distribute a pamphlet and claim that uh, it was up to the citizenry to take responsibility for themselves in in both pulling themselves up through the educational discourse of quality TV and in disseminating materials that would help them educate themselves and their peers on what it meant to be healthy. So yeah, just to get um, to get maybe more into the into the the detail of of, of the mm-hmm. argument that, that you're making. Um, so you talk about quality, healing through quality TV. So I think this is relevant to, to mental and physical health today, possibly. But we can draw that draw that out in a in a bit. But I guess the first question was: Could you maybe just outline quite briefly what are these wider trends in in eighties quality TV? What is it? What is it? What does it look like? What's the the, the context of, of TV in this period? Yeah, and maybe and maybe just to for our listeners who might not even be necessarily familiar with exactly what that category is. Mm-hmm. What is quality TV? Rather than being um, a a sort of um, uh, uh, teleological uh, progression where where TV has gotten uh, uh, better, even though the antecedents of all these types of shows have existed previously, that this is actually a discursive shift that's working in tandem with a stylistic 
on. Uh, so this is sort of a um, this is this is an idea that's being born not only out of the industry that's tar- trying to target what they consider to be a quality demographic of relatively upscale professional managerial class uh, white people living in urban areas, but there's a um, uh, there's a sort of um, collusive arrangement going on with popular press and with academia simultaneously where they're working to legitimate aspects of TV uh, to determine um, to, to, to sort of sanctify this this progression that okay maybe we started out in these lower forms of TV or maybe there was this moment where um, TV had the potential to be something great uh, ac- um, uh, uh, segments of um, academia and popular press scholarship like to harken back to the origins of um, uh, uh, live uh, telecasts of uh, programs like um, uh, Patterns, Marty uh, in the 1950s, shows that were broadcast as staged productions being televised for sort of educational or cultural betterment. I think the key term here is um, liberalism. Quality (laughs) TV really tries to um, instantiate a kind of niche liberalism for professional managerial class audiences who are audiences in the know, watching in the correct way, right. rather than the lowbrow audiences who are there for pure entertainment. So each of Hill Street Blues, St. Elsewhere, and then it, later on the yeah, shows that have even more um, of uh, anti-racist, anti-bias um, bent really create this liberal audience, right? Yes. That they, they construct that liberal audience who's tolerant yeah. and enlightened and going to watch television to reinforce liberal values. Right, who are watching TV for the right reasons. <laughs> watching the right TV for the right reasons. So um, I just had a question. Mm-hmm. I guess it relates to how, how audiences... Um, responded to this content, um, mm-hmm. how, how if you want to use the language, how it was decoded, how people took these, these cultural messages yeah. and what effect they, they had. Because I think um, this is a very contemporary issue that we have around prestige TV. There are often some quite exaggerated claims made for the effect of media uh, in general and perhaps TV specifically on the way that people understand social issues. And I think this is also touches on the question that Alex raised. So just to put it, put it in a bit of a pointed way. So how, how did, how did audiences respond to this, um, this, to this, uh, these messages? Um, do we know, can we say anything about, about the impact or the effect that, that these representations that you, we can maybe talk about the, the exact things around, around AIDS, particularly that, that were represented, but do we know what effect they had? Yeah, and maybe another way of asking that question is, did NBC fulfill its public health mandate to educate mass audiences about the AIDS epidemic when Reagan refused to do so from yeah. a state point of view? Was there like an elevated, did, they, did NBC reach all the audiences and were people more aware of the disease and the use of condoms or was it just a, did everyone just feel good and just go mm. on with their lives? Considering the the political circumstances, 
an early Frost, which was as opposed to one of the series I was talking about previously, like Hill Street Blues or St. Elsewhere, a sort of one-off TV movie that was already in the tradition of sort of the established genre of movie of the week, which was which was meant to and did bring in um, a much larger mass audience than did these 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 niche programs and so that made for television film in early frost. Yes. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Thanks Catherine. Um, uh, so this, um, so in the, in this instance, um, the film itself, the film as uh, a text is, uh, what was able to, to, reach people who otherwise might not have been invested in the discourse of AIDS. And this I looked at from a reception studies uh, uh, standpoint via fan letters that were sent in and are now housed at a particular um, archive. Some are housed at the uh, University of Georgia archive within their Peabody Awards collection. Of course, they want to present um, the the letters that make the the show look the best, right? Mm-hmm. So the the the. Uh, the perspective that one gets is yes, this was really effective, and it brought in, um, it it worked to educate and bring in folks um, and sensitize them to an issue that might not have been on their their radio radar previously. But I don't want to discount that perspective entirely. I think there's something really valuable uh, to be said again about a show uh, about a program that's reaching across to a variety of demographics graphics in a very fraught moment when this is a um, a, a major health problem. And books like David French's uh, uh, How to Survive a Plague, which is talking in a very um, pragmatic way about activists who were working with actual uh, working to to actually develop and test themselves and work out various um uh uh drugs and um uh preventive measures for the opportunistic infections that accompanied aids um that book mentions an early frost as a really important not only affective uh touchstone but something that um, did actually help to mobilize um, uh, political uh, courage and political sentiment around uh, this issue. With that said, um, an early frost is accompanied by very problematic paratexts, um, things that accompany the show itself but aren't actually part of the broadcast. So right afterwards, it was paired with a Tom Brokaw um, half-hour special, which was kind of like a retrospective of what a great job we, NBC, did of AIDS reporting in the first half of the 1980s, which is completely, um, uh, uh, completely false, completely um, constructed, and offers really no pedagogical viewpoint other than um, we as a network are really responsible and uh, really important to public health. Um, And here are more images of um, depressed people, people uh, entrenched in states of melancholy, suffering with AIDS, and isn't it important to sympathize with these folks? So weirdly, it sort of it, it sort of 
undermines in some way the show itself. So just just to pick up on this last point that mm-hmm. you're that you were making there, and I think because I think there's some really interesting ground to cover on um, depictions of illness mm-hmm. in the shows that you that you talk about. Um, so how so what what I guess what what were these messages that were contained within these shows? Y- yeah. you, you talk in the paper about um, gays being presented as tragic medicalized specimens, which right. I think is an interesting idea. Do you think that there's something sort so, something broader that we can take away from from the the work that you're doing about how how illness is is presented? And I think again, also just to hammer that point, what impact it has on on the audience? Right. Yeah. Um, that, that's a really good question, and the the effect that I'm that that I found in a lot of um, the quality oriented shows is that it remains about um, it, it 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 kind of maintains a heterosexual viewpoint. Ultimately, gay characters are employed for the betterment of the liberal professional class, managerial class, who themselves are not identified as LGBTQ. There's a presumption of uh, straightness, and these sort of narrow uh, uh, gay men are brought in. You usually always gay white men, especially in the AIDS era, are brought in as narrative tools to provide um, a, 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 a progress narrative, an enlightenment narrative for the straight characters at the center of the show. The gay characters are usually one-offs. They're in particular episodes, and then they'll disappear and never be heard from again. Whereas um, our, our straight characters in this sort of serialized context uh, learn something and are able to develop and have a sense of agency uh, and subjectivity. Uh, Whereas in other programs, um, I I, I discuss as sort of a counterpoint to the quality shows, um, programs that were devalued. There was a CBS series called Trapper John MD, also a medical drama. Um, And um, uh, uh, there, there, there were um, other shows. Hotel was another one, um, uh, an, an Aaron Spelling show that aired in the the um, uh, mid to late 1980s that were also tackling uh, AIDS and gay subjectivity, but weren't getting this kind of uh, popular press uh, adulation. And what I liked about programs like Hotel, Mr. Belvedere, Trapper John, MD, were even though they had some of the same restrictions, right, gay characters popping up in one-offs, these characters had a greater sense of agency and subjectivity, and they were episodes about coalition building. Um, across factions um, rather than uh, using the suffering gay person as a sort of medicalized tool of liberal tolerance. I think that's that um, this idea that it gives some of the the characters with whom the audience is supposed to sympathize Mm -hmm. the opportunity to chastise and heroically reform the person who's ill um, teachable moments within the narrative structure I think these are yeah in in really um, important points, but I think to to move it forward a yeah. little to to kind of I guess draw back to this um, the wellness myth that we, we that Catherine started off by um, by introducing. What what do you see as the this the the link here? So what contribution does does quality TV make to um, the perpetuation of this this myth of wellness? Yeah, just really put you on the spot. Yeah, no. Um, it, what what 
in my perspective, it does is it works to um, it works to further further um, I I first of all depoliticize um, and secondly sort of codify a solution that's not really a solution for a public health crisis. First of all, if the issue is brought in via reality TV in terms of we're not we're not looking at this politically. We're looking at it socially as a way to um, uh, as a way to sort of build characterization, to build a certain style. Then AIDS becomes sort of aestheticized and and used to. Um, used to perpetuate again a sort of liberal feel-good politics and when you feel good you don't really have to find solutions to um to problematics that uh require um that require funding that require drug testing that require um other forms of um politically aware and urgent uh intervention and by the mid uh 1990s partly because um the the uh hard uh, uh, medication regimen is coming in as something that um, de- largely determine, determines AIDS to be chronic, but no longer uh, as as lethal a diagnosis. Um, that's part of it, but also because um, the 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 white professional managerial class, Ron Becker in his book Gay TV in Straight America, calls this the slumpy demographic, sl- socially liberal, urban-minded professionals um, have developed a sense of solidarity with the with the perspective of gay men's plight with regard to AIDS, but in a way that doesn't compel them to engage any sort of action or advocacy. So um, the issues actually of AIDS on on TV largely disappear in the mid-1990s to be replaced by discourses of gay marriage and gay adoption and other sort of um, I, I, I neoliberal uh, cause celebres to replace what continues to be a an, an urgent medical crisis, especially amongst the especially amongst non-privileged factions. But it disappears as a TV episode because the demographics affected by the e- epidemic are not the ones that um, that that TV industry cares about. They're, so, right. Yeah. So, so I would add that you know this really helps us understand how the um, sentimental education of the professional managerial class um, is wrapped up in taking away class difference from minority communities. So it becomes, we've solved the problem of the gay community. Rather than looking at um, universal health care or working class rates of infection with AIDS, the AZT drug regimen was working by the 90s, and we sort of um, can move on to the normalization of gay life. So right. just 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 before you come back on that, I've just noticed that the professional managerial class are getting a real kicking in this discussion. <laughs> yes. So. yes, because wellness they they invented the term wellness. Yeah. Um, Not but that they don't deserve it. But. No, no. Yeah. Well, you know, we need to. Um, we're going to call them out. Yeah. No, but the other thing that I think that's really important about this critique of prestige TV because it goes against the grain of how it wants to be read is um, I think what Ben's trying to do is look at the limits of um, sentimental education or the building in the classic German sense of 
of um, Prestige TV because Prestige TV wants to be the sentimental education mm. of this privileged class. And it sort of completes the education with by the mid-90s, right, with, right. Uh, with regard to AIDS. And so we can move on. So not only does it sentimentalize and moralize um, the gaze of the philanthropist, it's like Victorian-era charity work. Um, it also um, dismisses a problem and, rather, and looks at um, and ignores infrastructural, pro infrastructural necessities because we are in a universal health care crisis in the United States. Mm -hmm. People are going bankrupt at the highest rate because of medical bills, not because of avocado toast. But um, um, we have we can't link those ideas up because we only want to celebrate the um, upper middle class gay male person, and we've saved them in some way, or we've resolved that issue. It's no longer an issue with the same kinds of urgency that maybe in the 1980s, at this point when NBC makes this intervention, it had because of Reagan's neglect of right. the public health message. So um, it's all about the wellness of mm -hmm. the PMC. Like, I, I feel really well now. I've done that. I, I feel really at peace here. One of the central questions which ties both your paper, but also a little bit what we were talking about there at the end in terms of the AIDS epidemic, is the shifting boundaries between illness and wellness, who's included in the community of the well or the ill, uh, AIDS patients being treated as uh, very much an other, uh, a tainted other, which maybe then can be uh, saved in some way through like through your own liberal feel-goodery. Um, there's, there's one line which actually really stuck out in, in the paper uh, where you cite someone referencing the, the ways in which illness traditionally illness punctuates ordinary life and that in these pharmaceutical adverts for antidepressants, uh, antipsychotics, that everyday, everyday life conceal conceals illness uh, that, which would prompt the, the subject to perform a sort of inner reflection, maybe medicalizing their own experience. Hey, maybe I actually am ill. Maybe this uh, this, this sort of uh, feeling of, just to, I'm not feeling so great, actually might be an actual illness which you can give a name to suddenly. So maybe you could talk a little bit yeah, about that. Yeah, so that actually is a quote from um, um, Joseph Dummett um, uh, in his uh, book, Drugs for Life, which looks at um, the manner in which um, profitability is kind of uh, uh, structured for pharmaceutical companies. Michael Mahoney on TV advertising for antidepressant medication. Um, and advertising is, is, a, is a big domain of this. Um, and really, it depends on this kind of um, uh, uh, redefinition of illness, right? Um, illness is no longer something that comes as a kind of surprise. These commercials invite you to sort of um, suspect illness uh, uh, deeply kind of concealed in your ordinary and everyday feelings. And I think this is probably um, something that happens on a, on a, on a really aggressive level um, in psychopharmaceutical advertisements. Um, so I guess just to back up a bit, um, pharmaceutical advertising on TV is a phenomenon that only two countries in the world allow, the United States um, and New Zealand. And it's a relatively recent phenomenon in the United States. I think um, uh, 2001 or 2004, I can't quite remember, is when the first um, television commercial for, um, uh, uh, I think it was Nasonex, a prescription allergy medication, appears. Um, shortly thereafter, um, uh, you see commercials for psychopharmaceuticals. I believe Zoloft was the first uh, one to be advertised on TV. Um, uh, and these kind of bear 
bore down on a relaxing of regulations on, on, on pharmaceutical advertising that ironic, ironically enough sort of begin um, uh, to take uh, up steam during the Reagan administration. Um, so first, um, pharmaceutical companies um, are given a, a new degree of laxity um, uh, to publish print advertisements in um, sort of mass media. Um, uh, prior to this, they were advertising exclusively to doctors. Um, and as actually um, uh, 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 people like David Healy and Joseph Dummett had pointed, have pointed out, um, uh, under the present logic of pharmaceutical advertising, um, uh, we have to think of doctors as consumers, right? They're not the kind of uh, uh, gatekeepers uh, uh, that I think popular um, uh, impressions might make them out to be. Um, but these are actually the first line targets of pharmaceutical companies. Well before um, um, they're developing commercials, um, they're sending um, representatives to doctor's offices to educate them, uh, and I'm using kind of inverted commas there, um, about um, these kind of newer drugs. Um, uh, this is an education that comes oftentimes with direct financial incentives. Um, doctors are, are, are paid um, a good amounts sometimes uh, to promote certain drugs over others. Um, and really, um, there's a lot of kind of regulations in place uh, that ensure that these doctors are only advertising um, these drugs. Uh, they're not allowed, for example, um, at pharmacies uh, uh, to disclose whether a cheaper alternative is available for newer branded products. Um, and, and doctors are, are oftentimes uh, coached to treat, um, you know, products that are older, and I'm talking about medicine here, um, um, as, as antiquated, when in fact newer drugs are oftentimes following the exact same kind of, um, uh, 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 they're hitting the exact same kind of receptors in the brain. So um, you see this kind of proliferation of, of, of advertising almost everywhere, um, uh, not just on television, but also in, in the form of kind of coaxing doctors as well. Um, and I think really, again, to get back to the original point, um, mood disorders provide, um, I, I think, one of the strongest examples of um, a, a classification um, that, that pharmaceutical companies can exploit on the basis of its um, ambiguity. And it's an ambiguity that um, actually rests in the DSM as well. They don't ever define what mood means. So I want <laughs> to go, I, no, I want to go back to the sort of um, countercultural origins of um, the, the DSM and the mood disorder discourse that you were just mentioning. I mean, what I think is so fascinating about this constant self um, exploration of disorder is that it kind of goes, um, it accompanies this idea, this anti-normative ideal in post-structuralism. Oh, I like, and, <laughs> and American receptions of Foucault. Yeah. I like to come back and do this. Hit yeah, hit the buttons. Buzzer. Yeah. It's just American. <laughs> uh, maybe it's too niche for us to talk about. But there's this kind of anti-normative sensibility that comes out of the 60s and 70s, right? Where, you know, we're all, we're going to refuse to be well. This is, I'm being very dialectical here. We're, we're, we're going to refuse to be normal. We're going to refuse to be well. We're going to suspect doctors and experts of diagnosing us. But what the advertising industry, the advice industry, the pharmaceutical industry sort of couples up with is this kind of sense of introspection and self-exploration um, self and expressivity that your paper does address too in these kind of discontented women who yes. rather than look at the material conditions of their discontentment are now seeing like, oh, maybe I feel very shy at a party. Maybe I have antisocial personality disorder, which is in the DSM-3 and then, or DSM-4 and therefore then treatable with anti-shy drugs or something like this. But it, all, it, makes, it makes a very personalized um, relationship with 
um, one's own mood, if you like, um, susceptible, like soft ground for the incursions of the advertiser and then the deauthorization of the doctor as expert. Um, yeah, so just I think it's it, it's extraordinary from uh, from British point of view the the widespreadness of these uh, of, of these ads. Already having seen one, um, only landing only yes, one, <laughs> yeah, only one. Twenty four hours. Yeah, <laughs> and it, uh, yeah, that was just the TV that was on in the car rental uh, place. So <laughs> completely ubiquitous. Um, but yeah, just so for listeners, I guess who are uh, not as familiar with the content of these these adverts, they they it's might very be thinking, in other yeah, yeah, really, like like. Formally illegal. <laughs> so they might they might be thinking, well, advertising has two main modes. It's either trying to sell a better life or it's trying to make you fearful of something. And I think, you know, you've you've outlined in a really interesting way some of the things that, you know, this constant looking inwards and oh I'm, I might be ill and I didn't even realise it. And then that's that's a way to sell um, to sell things. But you talk about this idea of living behind the mask. So t- could could you maybe describe some of these these advert ads for us? What what what's their what's their content? What do they um yeah. So, so before I do that, I should I should really give a sort of a, a statistic citation of how prevalent these commercials actually are in the United States. Mm-hmm. So, uh, according to a 2006 study, um, this is again only about five years after pharmaceutical advertisements start appearing on um, American televisions. Um, the study says that the average American viewer watches as many of, as nine of these drug ads a day um, for a total of 16 hours a year which vastly exceeds the amount of time ordinary people are spending with a physician. So these, these commercials are really, really penetrating um, airwaves here. Um, and the, and the it would com- just be interesting, just to refer back to also Ben's work, how, much, how many average viewers there actually are. Because, I mean, mass it, TV is a mass <laughs> medium. You know, you can segment to a certain degree, but there's a limitation to how, you, how much you can do that versus, for example, internet advertising, right? So this is, this is telling huge swathes of the population that they might be mentally ill. Right, right. And that's a good point. I mean, this is a statistic that only cites television, but these commercials are actually appearing on on like Hulu. You can you can see them uh, between um, uh, streaming content like a commercial break. Um, uh, uh, somebody who I uh, commented on this paper told me that um, she binge watches soap operas on streaming platforms and says that about every 10 minutes or so, there'll be a break where three of these mood disorder commercials come on. So it's something that's penetrated um, uh, streaming media as well. Um, and the content of these commercials, and I'm, I'm talking again about um, psychopharmaceuticals here, um, they generally feature women, um, and white women are, 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 are the um, uh, dominant demographic there. Um, and they'll feature um, things like um, a, a, a woman who's sort of complaining about the way in which um, uh, she's unable to kind of express her emotions to others. Um, so the, the commercial that I'm writing about here is um, for a drug called Rexalti. Um, Rexalti is um, uh, developed by um, Atsuka Pharmaceuticals, um, who um, uh, previously were making a killing off of a drug called Abilify. Um, Abilify is an atypical antipsychotic. Um, these were advertised to hell about 10 years ago as well. Um, it's an atypical antipsychotic that um, uh, gained FDA approval for the um, adjunct treatment of depression as an add-on to a previously existing medication. And this is a trend you see a lot of nowadays, is the um, uh, uh, sort of add-on medication or the medication that's designed merely to sort of um, mitigate the risks of certain lifestyle factors that can be changed behaviorally, right? The the most extreme example of this one, I think, is um, uh, a commercial that was running about two years ago, uh, every commercial break, um, for a drug called Movantic. Um, which was designed to treat, um, and I'm not kidding here, 
their opioid-induced constipation. Um, and in this commercial, um, wow. it's, 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 it's a commercial where you see this kind of big, burly construction worker um, who's going around this kind of shell of a house, hammering things. He's up on a scaffold. And every once in a while, he'll just turn around and start talking to you about his opioid-induced constipation. And really, this is, this, is a, this is a medication that is manufactured by the, the company that's separate. making that's making opiates. Purdue, probably. yeah, yeah, Purdue's making these drugs. Um, uh, so um, you'll see in these commercials, and oftentimes like these really sort of artificial um, appeals to ordinariness, right? Um, in the Rick Salty commercial, you see the woman going out um, uh, with friends. Um, she's at work talking to her boss and coworkers. Um, and for the first half of a com the commercial, she's holding up a paper mask in front of her face. Um, uh, uh, incidentally enough, um, this sort of really crude outline of a, of a, of a sort of half-frowning neutral face looks very much like um, um, uh, uh, the sort of star of the first um, uh, one of these commercials for Zoloft, uh, which was a little egg that was kind of drawn with human features. Um, uh, there's a cloud following it around. It, it rains on the egg. It's emojis. Um, it's, 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 it's an emoji. Yeah. It is kind of an emoji. You're right about that. Yes, yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, you were thinking very sexy film. I was well, thinking. Yeah. yeah. So, so, you know, there's this sort of paper mask that she's holding up um, uh, and, and, and talking about how she's unable to share her real, real feelings with other people. So to get back to the point about the way that these kind of um, television programs that Ben's talking about provide a kind of sentimental education um, um, for the professional man managerial class, um, these commercials kind of make appeals to sentimental discourse as well, right? The idea of real feelings being kind of suppressed, um, it, it, it's, it's outlined in the commercial as a social problem, right? She's, she's at work, she's with her friends, and she's bottling all of this up, keeping it to herself. Um, and then she mentions, um, I went to a doctor and uh, uh, essentially um, he said that um, uh, in spite of the uh, stated progress that I've had with my already existing antidepressant regimen, um, I need to add this drug Rexalti onto my regimen. Um, uh, so um, there's this logic of progress, right? That that one drug um, um, is is actually enhancing the progress of another one. Um, um, but at the same time, um, the commercial sort of invites you to see Rex Salty as this object that allows this woman to get past the mask. She's able to share her real feelings, almost in this kind of Humean sort of way. Um, so let me let me ask you about real feelings, uh, not your real. I mean, you can <laughs> yeah. if you want. You I'm have. only giving fake ones. Yeah. <laughs> just just lie down on the couch here for a second. Uh, I'm reveling. Your, I'm reveling. Please, no real feelings, <laughs> <Yeah>. please. <laughs> so. I feel like there's a contradiction here, but maybe this is me being a bit thick and not seeing the connection. So maybe you can explain this for me. You have this idea that you're living behind the mask, that you have a, a social mask, which is artificial, and you have the authentic self, which has these feelings. Uh, and, that's, and those feelings can be treated. Right, they can be treated through pharmaceutical intervention, medical well, intervention. Well, they can be drawn out through pharmaceutical intervention. Right, right. That's I think the idea. But but as but as everybody could be ill, right? I mean, that's that's the proposal of this. That even normal feelings that your sadness might actually be medicalized as depression, um, and so that seems to be like, well, but if everybody's a bit ill, and that everybody's authentic self, and that so everyone's using this mask. I mean, how how does what what does this relationship look like when it's um, played out across society that everybody is living behind an artificial mask and everybody is ill but also the illness is also normal because everyone's their normal moods are also illnesses so 
Well, Where there, do we there, there's this. Can, oh, go ahead. Go can, ahead. I, can I just intervene here a little bit? I think that in the um, high in the heyday of liberalism, there was this kind of um, white collar discipline that we hid our emotions. Like this is yeah. what people say about the great generation of Americans who fought this, you know, great war, the World War II is that we there was no imperative to penetrate the mask. The mask was a good thing. You went to work mm -hmm. and you had a mask, mm -hmm. right? It's very recent that we've. Lee, like since the 60s that we think, oh, in public sphere, we should be expressing everything we feel. Because the problem with these advertisements yeah. is that it's not with the mask. Um, it's w Oh, no, it is with the mask. You have to take off the mask. So it's not that we're all um, behind masks. Some of us are expressing freely, like some mm. of us are authentic, and mm. the depressed person feels... Well, there's a great contrast that I just read. being performative. They're being, yeah. But well, there's a great contrast which I read in something that preparing for this, and I've forgotten what it was. But the 19th century public self was actually very comfortable with social interaction because everybody accepted that you were wearing a mask and you knew the modes of conduct that were appropriate to social interaction. And now we're a little bit confused because we're meant to be authentic, but you also know that you present a mask that so you don't go out wearing but, an open bathrobe. But, <laughs> you know, you but it's very, it's very gendered too because of the woman thing. The 19th century ideal of the social self was based on the um, gambler and the stockbroker and the Brits at the most advanced form of capitalism then, and the poker face was really important mm -hmm. because you couldn't be readable. Benjamin talks about this too. Mm. You shouldn't be readable. But here in these ads, it's like, it, it's not about readability of the social sphere. It's about your frustration that you can't break through and express yourself in public. That spaces. you can't disclose. You get that your that disclosure is blocked. It's right? blocked. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm going to say this is part of the '60s countercultural um, diminution of the protocols of the public sphere. Is that the ideal is that we should all be maskless? Well, and and this LSD really actually serves this kind of like chemical catalyst for that in a lot of ways. I mean, Herbert Marcosa um, endorses the use of LSD as, as a kind of anti-psychiatry move, as a way of getting outside of the kind of oppressive structures. People of, normally of, dealt with shyness just by drinking. I mean, I'll go. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> it's funny that we keep that separate. Yeah, yeah, yeah but um, I mean, the interesting thing there is that LSD actually provided the, the sort of scientific mechanism um, behind the serotonin hypothesis that um, uh, pharmaceutical companies um, really kind of abuse um, in the name of selling um, uh, antidepressants that target serotonin receptors. But LSD um, uh, is, is a sort of chemical that enabled that because it blocks off one of your uh, major serotonin sites um, to create all those kind of hallucinatory effects. And those effects were pop propped up by 60s counterculture as the same kind of emancipatory shedding of the mask, right? Um, but in the sense of these kind of Rex Salty commercials, um, there is a kind of clear line that gets drawn visually um, and representationally between the depressed person and their peers, right? Mm -hmm. their, their peers are all maskless in these commercials. Um, uh, and, and they're having fun while um, the sort of protagonist of the commercials is kind of um, slumped off on the side frowning, um, uh, crossing, crossing her arms there. Um, uh, one of the other things that I think is really interesting is that you do see this kind of contradiction um, um, at times uh, in these commercials too as 
Um, uh, another commercial that you get um, on TV a lot now is for a, um, a, an anti, another antipsychotic. Antipsychotics are, are are big right now <laughs> um, uh, for a drug called um, Vralar. And there's actually a lot of different variations on this commercial um, that all involve women. Um, uh, one one features a white woman, one features a woman of color, and they're performing this kind of excess of housework. Um, they're they're washing uh, windows while they're uh, cooking a meal. They're um, uh, uh, writing things down. There's paper everywhere, um, and like the only sign um, visually that that would communicate some kind of disorder um, is that they all go on these kind of binge shopping things. Like it'll show their Amazon card off to the side while they're just ordering things as they're doing all of this housework. So you're actually getting this kind of policing of consumption at the same time you're being asked to consume. This medication. Just a manic. It's right, you're manic, manic yeah. Manic. So just maybe a, um, I, th I think this, this idea of, of um, the ethics of, of, of being authentic and that's how you need to, rep to present yourself in social interactions <laughs> is really fascinating. But a, a more critical question, I mean, do these adverts that you've, that you've described in a really interesting way, do they, do they reflect or do they constitute this, this shift? I think there's a, there's a deeper question here. What allows... I mean, this other than the profit motive of, of big pharma, this um, this attempt to 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 redefine um, mood disorders. Right, and I, I mean, I think it's I think it's actually within that that redefinition of mood disorders that these pharmaceutical companies are actually be able to generate these kind of representations. Um, uh, the idea of a mood disorder appears for the first time. Um, I think it's in the DSM three. It might be in the DS. No, yeah, it's DSM. No, it's the, the revised DSM three. Um, which came out in 1987, and this is the exact year that Prozac debuts um, on American um, markets. Um, and, and mood disorders are meant to sort of subsume um, earlier classifications like manic depressive illness, uh, which is now called um, bipolar disorder, um, and involutional melancholia, um, which is a near ancestor of major depression, and separate these from um, psychotic disorders, um, like schizophrenia. Um, uh, they were originally um, actually termed effective psychoses, um, but in the 1987 um, um, DSM-3, they become mood disorders. And while this might just seem like semantics, I think it's actually, um, uh, 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 it, it indicates uh, a lot going on behind the scene. Um, uh, again, there's no such thing as Prozac before these mood disorders are, 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 are appearing in the DSM. Um, what's also interesting is that this is the exact time um, in which um, behavioral economics starts generating this kind of vocabulary of market mood. Um, if you do one of those Google Ngram searches for mood disorder and market mood, they spike in 1987. There's like kind of trace. But that's um, the stock market crash. So you're the stock yeah. market crashes under Reagan. Yeah. Um, uh, so um, mood is actually defined in the DSM in very sort of contradictory um, and vague ways. There's a circularity between a mood and emotion. Um, uh, mood and emotion are, are sort of defined against one another and through one another. Um, uh, and while Martin goes on to provide a kind of supplementary definition for mood as a meta state which conditions emotions, um, I think that the, 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 the ambiguity there is, is really important to sort of maintain because it's the precise ambiguity that pharmaceutical companies are taking advantage of to sort of sell emotion as a pathology. I guess the, 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 just to push you a little bit further on this, so what are the, what are the, the social um, changes or the changes in, in, in class or in the ways that people are living that mean that these things resonate particularly strongly? Because I think it, it is a, 
um, a quite extraordinary redefinition of personhood that in some of the ways that you've defined but how what allows this to be successful because I think obviously big pharma play a role but there's it seems like there has to be another side of that explanation so what what changes in society what well, the real sort of um, interesting thing here um, is that um, it's it, it's changes to um, insurance law in the United States that really allow these kind of drugs to become successful um, so during um, uh, the 2008 um, financial fallout um, the exact sort of um, uh, the exact piece of legislation that um, George W. Bush um, signed um, to enact the Emergency Economic Stabilization Act um, and the um, Troubled Assets Relief Program. Um, this is the sort of legislation that um, uh, uh, gave $700 billion to the Federal Reserve um, for the purpose of buying back toxic financial assets. Um, there's a rider on, the, on that exact bill. Um, called the Paul Wellstone and Pete Dominici Mental Health Parity and Addiction Equity Act. Um, it's Section C of, of, of Public Law 110343. Um, and this was meant to provide um, sweeping reforms to an earlier Clinton era um, um, policy um, that mandated parity and employer issued medical insurance um, between surgical and mental health benefits. Um, and what the, what the 2008 um, uh, rider actually did was close certain pragmatic loopholes um, in, in this Clinton era law that allowed insurers to um, claim coverage exemption for certain DSM classifications. So they were allowed to kind of cherry pick, um, insurance providers were allowed to cherry pick which DSM classifications would be covered under their, under their um, insurance. Um, uh, and the reason for this um, uh, was because they, uh, that the insurers and the employers felt that the DSM um, was, was vague to the point where people could show up and claim that they had something like jet lag um, on the basis of, of, of really kind of vague symptoms. I wish I had known this this morning. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and they can thereby game um, their employer and their insurer. So there's, there's a sort of um, uh, underlying kind of structural way in which um, uh, uh, health insurance laws in the United States have, have, have kind of converged favorably toward um, pharmaceutical. This idea of efficiency um, is one of the, the kind of the core aspects of the wellness myth in general. And I just wanted to, to, to bring it back to, you know, to where we started. Um, so I think it'd be very useful to maybe try and bring these two papers together a bit, bring the, bring the whole discussion together and, and reflect a little bit on what, what maybe they say together about the, the wellness myth, how, how exactly we want to understand this. I'm going to throw it to Catherine in, in, in just a second. Um, but yeah, I think because I think the in different ways they both provide and both of these papers and, and the discussions that we've had provide an illustration of some of these these a really good illustration of some of the key aspects of neoliberalism. So this phrase, which gets used a great deal, um, but often I think in not the clearest way. But you see some of these we've talked about some some of these ideas of how maybe we could go on to talk about this how you can monitor how you can quantify things which previously were. Um, were unquantifiable, not measurable, and then how you respond to them, how you create these social problems, and then the sorts of suggestions, the sorts of solutions that are that are presented. So maybe, um, Catherine, not to put you on the spot too much here, but just to, I think, Summarize. yeah, just to yeah. maybe to you know no, re relate this to the to the research project that you've, you know, that's that's why we've we've convened here today. I would say that it was in the 1980s. Um, both these papers are dealing with this issue when um, elites or pro uh, professional managerial class, bourgeois, the bourgeois professional managerial class was actually training itself to leave certain people behind. 
to leave mm. the majority of people behind. And it was going to do this in a way that had to do with affect, that had to do with sentiment and feeling. That there were, um, and it's, it was a brutal regime under Reagan to think about how certain people were just not worthy of um, social or public investment, and that certain people were extremely worthy, and in fact hyper-worthy, of um, private investment and private success. And this brings us back to a term that um, um, William Davies uses in the happiness industry, where he talks about um, the happiness industry and wellness as a, uh, wellness industries as willing to take up all these regimes from exercise to diet to the most advanced forms of, you know, um, um, self-care in or because, um, the elites in the sort of post 1980s period believes them believe themselves to be perfectible mm. and their bodies are perfectible their minds are perfectible the reason why they're billionaires or or centimillionaires or you know just a couple millionaires they have superior abilities they have superior discipline and so elites are on this trajectory of self-enhancement and um, perfectibility, and other people need to be left behind. The, ad the psychopharmological um, advertising to um, women or to distressed women, like they move in where the second, where um, Betty Friedan's feminism um, fails in some way by privatizing unhappiness and ma and uh, and making I think a lot of um, um, struggling women. On the liminal, on the liminal level between you know petty bourgeois and elite and PMC, um, that level of um, class consciousness is the place where a lot of um, anxiety is formed, and therefore they're treating that level of um, um, disorder by motivating them to make this superhuman effort to move yourself into the four percent, because this is what the the um, a lot of the economic um, data that has been looking at um, the problems of redistribution and misdistribution is that you have the one percent, but it, it's actually the the guardians of entry into the elites actually take place in the four percent. To get up from the 90th percentile to the fourth percentile of income is the most difficult. Um, is a very, very difficult trajectory, and that superhuman effort, and we were talked about this before, has to take place by a kind of almost self-mining of motivation in order to push yourself through to this next level. And rather than thinking about the infrastructural collapsing of um, um, government provision that really affected women the most, mm -hmm. because women benefited from welfare and benefit from social services the most, you have this idea of, um, um, mood disorder that can be treated so that you can make the superhuman effort to move into um, the elites. So what I think what's also happened is this collapsing of this idea that ordinary people of ordinary ability, of mm -hmm. ordinary bad moods should also be able to prosper in our socialist utopia. Under this capital, under neoliberal dystopia, you have to be extraordinary. You have to be, you know, you have to be outstanding. You have to be the Lionel Messi of um, soccer in order to be able to achieve anything and in order to motivate people to do that you have this whole phalanx of um, treatments that will allow you or psychopharmological treatments will allow you to um, 
mind that kind of motivation. At mm. the same time, that Ben's paper shows us what liberal elites should look at. And it doesn't matter if you're gay, straight, of color anymore. Elites of all different stripes of identity will be able to say, well, they didn't do the right thing then. I'm okay. I have the right attitude. These poor suffering people, they didn't um, behave correctly. They didn't manage their illness. They didn't manage their drives for pleasure. And that, you know, a kind of diverse elite will be able to separate themselves from the others with a kind of clear conscience. And the 1980s yeah. was really an incredible time for making that um, so, psychologically possible. Mm. Because otherwise it's very distressing yeah. to see people suffering, right? So this and you're so, like, oh, I'm real, I don't know how to feel about this. Well, so this, this, this teaches us yeah. how to feel about so this. Is, so this suggests that the there are two two things that are particularly important here. One is the, the inequality that, right. that Un that underlies this, right. that accelerates that from the 80s and onwards. Yeah. And, yeah. The s and the second is the notions of blame, that essentially this is, there is a moral register here, it is extremely important that um, ideas of stigma around, around mental and physical ill health are, are mobilized because they play, a, they play a social function. They play, they, le they legitimate this. Okay. And you know so, this is, so this is, so we're getting back to old fashioned ideology critique, critique, as you said. And American, uh, American, um, professional managerial class elites will say, you made bad choices. Mm. And that's a lot of the AIDS discourse of the 80s. was not that we have an infrastructural health problem or that it's an epidemic. They'd say, you're making bad choices. Mm -hmm. And if you are you know, in student loan debt today, you've made some bad choices. There are, there are no choices, but neoliberalization creates this idea that we, we have to optimize our mood so that we can make the right choices. Be We've productive. Yeah, but 40, 50 years later, we realized that there were no choices. Mm. There was a massaging of an illusion of choice. Yes, this is back to old ideology mm. critique. The different class diagnoses of depression make us think of how wellness may have different dynamics across different social classes, and also on whether the political responses to this state of affairs that are currently on offer are adequate. If capitalism makes us depressed, but depressed people can't act, then how do we get beyond this situation? I just wanted to put a plug for Jennifer Silva's work. Yeah. She came here for um, the conference last year. She wrote, she wrote Coming Up Short, um, Coming of Age in Working Class America. And um, her new um, book is project is about the treatment of pain in post-industrial and deindustrialized depressed towns. And she feels that... Um, there, the overprescription of opioids is trying to address working mm -hmm. class pain, but not through antidepressants, yeah. through um, opioids, at least in the past five years. That working class people have pain and middle class people have depression. Yeah. And so um, the drive to overprescribe opioids in West Virginia, in um, Pennsylvania, in these yeah. spaces, in these um, coal mine, you know, old coal mining towns in the Rust Belt has created a uh, public health crisis of enormous mm. proportions. So when you were talking about the different class diagnoses yeah. of depression, I, I think it's really important to think about working class depression. And Silva has really given us a model for thinking about also how working class people in America have less access to therapy. Yeah. So they are the biggest consumers of self-help mm. right now. Mm. I mean, we, we think, um, we laugh at it, but it actually is a class-based thing now where they're consuming, you know, tapes, um, books, and all sorts of things that tell them to internalize their own faults and say that um, if they're 
um, struggling to make ends meet. It's because they made bad choices. This, they are living at the edge of ideology. They don't have the privilege of thinking about these things well, well, in a yeah. culturally um, savvy way or something. I mean, I, I, there are at least certain aspects or certain forms of, no. I don't know, affect theory more broadly, which does have a kind of a, th uh, I don't know, a, f a, f a feeling, for want of a better word, of being like, being like bourgeois self-help. Thomas Williams on capitalism and depression. Right, that it's not, I mean, specifically the text that I'm kind of talking about here, which kind of quite dangerously actually kind of moves away from like medical models because in its place advocates yoga and swimming and like creative and creative writing. And that's not, I'm not like joking or, <laughs> or kind of exaggerating there. There is an actual uh, like advocation of yoga and swimming and like creative movement in order to in order to cure, well, I don't know whether this is secure, but at least to kind of be a coping mechanism with something which is at least like 10 pages previously diagnosed as a kind of symptom of neoliberalism. So, so actually, it's interesting to finish on, on that point, because the question, yeah. next question that I was going to ask was <clears throat> essentially sort of moving through the argument of the, the paper a little bit. Um, so what do you think that the depression or the way that it's it's understood yes. the way that I guess it's managed even socially what does that tell us about about neoliberalism does it actually throw some interesting light on this on this term which is often one that I think is used mm -hmm. um, indiscriminately um, and I think very often getting yeah. into some of the concrete analyses around things like yeah. mental health can or education specific yeah. context can reveal some quite interesting things about neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, well, I suppose, I mean, the, the way that I, I suppose talk about, I talk about it here is, um, I mean, maybe as the, is this, maybe is this kind of text or this kind of approach to it is, um, you know, is of course like a symptom of kind of neoliberalism itself in that it seems as something which is, which kind of, I don't know, emphasizes the like the like the political over the over the economic right. So there's an idea that it's a. I mean, this is something that it's kind of generally like misidentified as right. That it's kind of it mm -hmm. has this kind of guise as being of of being like an act of actual economic analyses, whereas actually it's a cultural. kind of yeah, it's a kind of a cultural like political transformation. I'm not sure it necessarily tells us maybe something specific or different about it, other other than that we're being told to be like creative agents or like and like sovereign and try to like reclaim this idea of like the sovereign subject again and the kind of individual who can um can reinvent can reinvent or, or like overcome all circumstances despite quite concrete evidence that that's mm. like not mm. possible the, the, like the material like the material bases are things that can be overcome just through like willpower right basically. but there's another angle to this as well which relates very closely i mean to this discussion of neoliberalism the crude kind of lefty version account of neoliberalism which i think now fortunately we're kind of we're moving beyond i guess in, in discussions people have come to terms with the fact that it isn't this margaret thatcher 1980s neoliberalism mm. which even then is probably you know probably needs reevaluation as well but mm. that it's not this cold and lonely world of individualized market competition it mm. is that as well but the idea of rational self-seeking actors all competing in the yeah. marketplace in this really um uptight austrian <laughs> vision of the world um 
No, there's nothing against Austrians. It's, it's you know, it's a scholarly reference. It's not anti-Austrian. Yeah. Anyway. Um, <laughs> but right, kind of Austrian economics, right? That actually, it's a much more emotional world. It's a lot wetter, I guess. It's mm-hmm. a lot, you know, that that institu- that, that the treatment of, of the individual isn't even necessarily as strong... There is this element of it being the strong sovereign actor in the market. Yeah. There's also the the treatment of people as being abject and incapable mm-hmm. and in need of intervention, in need of surveillance, yeah. need of care by institutions which come around. And mm. so, you know, you, your corporate overlord is also, you know, your your nurse and your psychiatrist mm. and offers you wellness. So it's a bit of a different conception of yeah. neoliberalism to, to at least that crude one. Yeah. So because if you're talking about exploitation, you're talking about the ways that this happens, it's not... Uh, so much anymore you work and you get your wage and you're supposed to just put mm. you know put up with your job and you get through it and you live your life outside of that and and, instead, and your private life is very much separate from your work and, yeah. and that's not what you have instead today. now you need emotional you need uh, investment of affect in your work you need mm-hmm. to so there is a, a um a management of that and it you know i think that's that's an important aspect of an analysis yeah. like these that it's <clears throat> You know, Absolutely. there's that it's not completely removed from the from the economic sphere. Mm-hmm. Um, but I had I had a question, um, Thomas, yeah. around. So I think you, you kind of go through some of the um, neoliberal responses to de- depression, you know, in more or less detail in, in the paper. Yeah. Things like mindfulness and turning inwards, focus on the body and, and movement. Yeah. And obviously medicalization and, and, yeah. and drugs. What do you one? Is there anything that I've, I've missed there <laughs> um, from these characteristics? neoliberal responses to depression or but more generally what what does i guess what what does this tell us or making the link to politics yeah. what, what should we what should we do about this how should we position ourselves in in response to this because it seems like there is a real a real need here people's affect is low in in various mm-hmm. ways but it also seems these responses are not acceptable so what do we do uh, <laughs> oh good question wow um <laughs> Well, I'm not. Be, <laughs> so if we can put it out to a sound bite, so we can just resolve everyone's issues. That'd be great. Um, Thank you in advance. I'm not. I'm not. Well, there, there is a kind of a maybe a short-term thing that we could short-term things that we can maybe do to try and cope, or at least like make like make it through. Which again is like actual proper access to mental health provisions right um which involves both you know um health which which, which involves both kind of medical kind of health care mm-hmm. and also forms of therapy that aren't necessarily cognitive behavioral therapy that mm-hmm. may actually like address the kind of in the, the the kind of like material circumstances of of like living through capitalism one of these might be psychoanalysis but i'm not sure we're going to be able, we're going to be able to get um but that's important. certain forms of psychoanalysis available on the on the kind of ed- it's not it's not efficient we can't measure on the it NHL. sorry yeah and it, like any anytime soon so that that they, they might be things that we can kind of deal with but i mean it's important to make that distinction isn't it yeah. i think it's too often glossed over because when you say, yeah, we need more mental health support, I'm thinking, that's good. But on the other hand, something about that is like, it's not, but it, doesn't that just further the individualizing tendencies? The sec- and so, yeah. when you, so if you're talking about psychoanalysis, I'm like, okay, that's interesting. But that often gets lost when you talk about more mental health provision. And also, I mean, also certain forms of psychoanalysis do the same work that um, 
for things like you know things like dialectal behavior therapy or like cognitive behavior yeah, therapy we do because they still they kind of reinforce this idea of like the separate kind of separate and like acting individual whereas you whereas you would need something which is maybe trying to um which has the i don't know the social like the social for like the, i don't know the social fabric as as a and the kind of bettering of like of, of societal Mm-hmm. well-being to use a horrible yeah, yeah, phrase yeah. at its core rather than a simple like improvement of, of like of the individual the other i mean the other longer term answer is that i'm not sure that anything <laughs> that anything less than you know the ends of capitalism will necessarily actually check like will actually necessarily change that mm. um and i think maybe the only thing that we can do is is unfortunately certain like management techniques that will that will some will, that will that would and could like make life better the, yeah. you know the increasing of like a, I don't know a, like a social like the increasing of like a, the presence of like a social safety net that the fact that some the, the idea that someone isn't in that someone who isn't in work can't basically can't live can't like can't find you know can't eat can't yeah you know i don't think, I think that anything other than like the actual radical transformation of society would actually like change anything to be perfectly honest i think there's a really felt loss of community loss of Mm -hmm. support atomization and this is definitely one way um that it goes but i guess one one point just to draw out here that you make in the paper Mm -hmm. is and then maybe put another kind of pointed question so you say the very nature of depression actually works against the possibility of political action yeah so in one sense it's a response possibly not to put words into your mouth but a response to a situation which requires change Mm -hmm. but you also seem to say well maybe it's not the easiest condition from which to 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 start to organize Mm -hmm. to start to actually um to have the energy required for political change so maybe you could just unpack this a bit yeah um because it seems like if that's completely true then um we're in we're in trouble i think that has been Maybe a so I mean I first wrote something like this or first wrote this particular paper what about three or four years ago, right? I think there has been a certain shift, like at least a little attitudinal shift, but which has obviously been um brought about by a by kind of shifts or kind of or a shift, at least like a shift in awareness of people's own economic and political circumstances. Um that maybe suggests that people aren't quite as i don't know rigidly fixed or they do actually believe that there is something that's coming so they may actually have been on a societal level to use like therapeutic terms a kind of a certain working through right that's that's happened that has maybe like allowed a um kind of progression away from the like just to say like the status quo the other thing may be to suggest that certain types of these movements aren't one quite as radical as they perhaps think they are and don't necessarily advocate for as much of a change to much as don't equate to as much of a change as is um is or kind of has been kind of thought that's a specific example that you have in mind or um I mean, you can think about this in terms of both like Corbyn and Sanders, Sanders, right? Who are clearly significantly different from like what's kind of gone before yeah. in both like the Labour Party and the, like in the Democratic Party, but at the same time are 
um, advocating for you know forms of social democracy which are still grounded in capitalism rather than it's mm. like absolute abolition. There's, it's funny because there is a certain, I guess, thinness to it. I mean, it's because it comes out in, in a total vacuum, a, a, a political desert, yeah. right? And which makes them sort of a bit miraculous yeah. in a sense. Uh, but it also means that they're still quite thin in uh-huh. their materialism. And I use materialism yeah. in, in the in a kind of more vulgar sense mm-hmm. that they're like, well, we just need to get more welfare, yeah. maybe more jobs, if you're thinking yeah. a little bit more for a Green New Deal, but there isn't a, a, a real sense of ideology or a sense of social transformation that accompanies it. Mm. Society will be a bit fairer. We're going to be a little bit less stressed. Yeah. We might be a little bit less anxious in that yeah. society. But when it comes down to the kind of effective level and that kind of ideological yeah. mediation between what kind of society you're building, how do you feel in that society, and then what are the s- sorts of public yeah. provision, what the what does the structure of the economy look like, yeah. there, there's a, there isn't that much there, yeah. right? It, it is thinner. But then the, the 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 flip side to that yeah, is course. that the, those movements which do talk about mm-hmm. affect yeah. are mostly terrible. Of course, so. <laughs> yeah. And the the other, I mean, the thing is also that you know, to put it more relatively bluntly, things are so bad right now that like these changes do actually seem extremely like do actually seem signif- extremely significant and will actually at least I would I would hope I can't you know. Think say any kind of say any more than that, but they will actually make like tangible differences to people's like every everyday lives. Yeah. Um, so I'm not. This is not. This is not to say that um, <laughs> I'm. I'm necessarily um, entirely. You know, I'm obviously not against these things, right? Or yeah. kind of against these movements. And I do. Th- I I know. Why f- I feel that I know full well that the people that I love and care for in the UK's life would would almost certainly get better say if 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 labor were elected over the like over the conservatives and I would I would think that it would obviously it's going to take more time than like a four year election cycle That's it for part one of Kalibunga, Tech, Drugs, and Capitalist Soul. Part two is out next week, in which we explore the relationship between tech and health, how holistic ideas of wellness have teamed up with a drive for bourgeois perfectibility to create an often anxiety-inducing situation of constant self-monitoring, and how self-medication serves as a release from the injunction to always be bettering yourself. So there's more from the States of Wellness group, plus Amber Lee Frost, whom we met up with in LA to discuss all this. Only half of this series will be publicly available, so do subscribe for full access. You can do that as ever at patreon.com slash bungacast. And again, if you like what we're doing, please do rate and review us on Facebook and iTunes. We greatly appreciate it. And tell your friends. You'll feel really good if you do, I promise. All right, catch you later. Bye-bye.